0: Inhale. Open the eyes softly now. Namaste everyone and welcome to this session and thank you all. Thank you Heather for giving me this opportunity. It's thank wonderful you. to be back <laughs> and we're going to talk about the yoga sutras. Now let me ask you uh, uh, how familiar you are with the sutras at this moment. In the sense that what, what all have you studied so far? Uh, that way I can, you know, right. modify what I cover and what I don't cover.
1: So, um, we have covered the eight limbs. I see. Right. And um, talked about Patanjali and um, his, his path through history and what he contributed to <coughs> yoga. And they've been reading this.
0: So that was one of the books that they read this month. Is mm-hmm. the Yoga neutral of Yeah. Okay. All right. So you know, if you if you find that I'm repeating what you already know, you can just kind of give me a hint. We'll, we'll skip skip through that portion. Otherwise, we'll keep going because uh, what I present maybe is slightly different than what you have understood so far. Who knows? You know, it, it all depends, right? So we'll do it that way. Okay. So. Uh, Whenever we study Patanjali, uh, this is like an invocation, kind of remembering stage Patanjali for what he was. So, we'll we'll do this. You can read it on the screen or you can close the eyes and listen to me. It's a little, it has a little tune to it. So, we'll, we'll do that, okay? Yogena chittasya padena vacham Malam shari rasya ca vaidya khena Yopakarottam pravaram muninam Patanjalim pranjaliranatos mi Patanjalim pranjaliranatos mi Abahu purushakaram shakshankh chakrasidharinam sahasraserasam shvetam pranamami patanjalim This is like, a, like an invocation to Patanjali. One of you, if you don't mind, read the English translation. Can you read that from there now? No, no, before that, also one paragraph. Oh,
2: sorry. Uh, I respectfully bow down with folded hands and offer my salutations to Sage Patanjali, the highest among the Munis, who has presented the remedies for removing the impurities of the body through his treatise on Ayurveda, Ayurveda of language through his treatise on grammar. And the impurities of the chitta through his treatise on yoga. Bow, I bow to Patanjali's upper body above the arms is of human shape. Who is carrying a conch, a disgust and a sword,
0: and has one thousand bright heads. Okay, so that's that's just a a, <clears throat> a way to uh, recognize his contribution to to us all of us. Um, he is. Obviously historians have all kinds of different views, but this is the most common view that he was the guy who presented us, not just with yoga, but he gave us this whole, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the best commentary on the, on the Sanskrit grammar. Okay? the Most authentic, most revered commentary on the Sanskrit grammar, as well as he was the a great contributor to the science of Ayurveda. Does everyone know what Ayurveda is? Roughly, no? Ayurveda is an ancient Indian system of medicine, very ancient. It's, it's predominantly based on herbal medicine and it, it's fairly commonly practiced uh, in India and all over the place now. It's getting a little more popular now, okay? Ayurveda. Okay, so that's what he is given the credit for. Obviously, a great, great personality. All right? So uh, what I've done is to kind of divide this whole presentation into. I've, I've sent you five different uh, presentations. Okay. Obviously, we will not be able to cover everything <laughs> in that. It's it's a lot of stuff to cover, but I'll I'll try to kind of go through the whole uh, presentation in a sequence that I feel is more comfortable for everyone to understand. You know, this is the way I have uh, understood, you know, so we'll skip, like we'll go to the chapter 1 in the beginning and then skip over to maybe the eight limbs of yoga and go back and go back to chapter 2 and then, you know, do different things, okay? It's just a good, I think it's a natural flow. I hope you'll be okay with that. And, uh, some of the stuff here is going to be fairly, what should I use the word? Fairly deep, okay. Fairly, uh, uh, you know, it's very involved conceptually, you know. So, if you have any kind of questions, if you think I'm going too fast or I'm, I'm not able to explain well, ask please, okay? Stop me anytime, it doesn't matter where we are. You will not be interrupti- interrupting the flow at all. You will be adding to our understanding. So please ask, all right? That's very important.
1: I, I do want to say that we, uh, we observe each month during teacher training uh, Yama or Niyama oh, and we study that every single month.
0: That's beautiful. So, <laughs> yes. so I'll, I'll go through that section very, very quickly just to uh, kind of glance over what I have you know, prepared. So, that part I understand now. Very good. Okay. So, very quickly again, since you already mentioned that you have gone through the history, his time period is not well known, but most people tend to believe that he was within about 200 years of Buddha, you know. And Buddha is known to have been around 300 BCE, so somewhere in that time frame. Okay. And then he is also, you know, given the credit for giving us the grammar and the Ayurveda. Alright? Now these sutras are very very brief, very cryptic as you know that. Right? Very cryptic. Why? Because this is 2000 years ago there was nothing to to record it on. Right? There was no, no, no internet in those days, no recording instruments, no writing instruments. People had to write on basically tree leaves, basically, you know, everything was written on tree leaves. And then, I mean, <laughs> there's a story that, that goes in the name of Patanjali, that when he wrote down, I mean, there was a scribe and all that, so they wrote it down nicely and then they went to sleep at night. They were obviously in the forest under the trees. A goat came and ate all the papers. <laughs> okay. So that goat had to be reborn in a certain fashion. <laughs> all kinds of stories are there, all right. So uh, so that's why, you know, because there was nothing to write on, nothing to, to keep it alive, so they had to be very, very brief and cryptic. And because they are very cryptic, it's not easy to understand. So to understand them, we absolutely need the help of some reliable commentary. Absolutely. There's no way to understand otherwise. Okay. And, uh, so, what, what has happened is, you know, the, there was another person by the name Vyasa. His commentary is supposedly the most authentic, most authoritative, most recognized commentary on the sutras. And <laughs> there are even stories that he was, first of all, he was a compatriot of Patanjali uh, around the same time. Some people actually claim, that Patanjali himself changed his name to Vyasa and wrote that commentary. Who knows? OK. All kinds of stories. But that's the most, most recognized, most revered commentary. Any modern commentator worth his or her name would use that as the basis for their commentary. OK. And there are so many sub-commentaries on the commentary. All right. It has uh, it has 195 verses in four chapters, as you all know. Some some texts have 196 also. So, that's how it is. Now, yoga is actually one of the six systems of Indian philosophy. Are you familiar with that? Six systems? No. No, very. Big. Okay. I mean, maybe I know, but I don't know that
3: they are the six systems.
0: Okay. So, systems, yeah. so they, okay. So they are called. In Sanskrit, they are called shat Darshana. Darshana means a philosophical system. shat means six. And yoga is one of them. And I'm not going to go through anything like this, but there are these six. The one is called Nyaya, Vaisheshika, then there is yoga and sankhya, and then there is mimansa and Vedanta. You probably have heard the term Vedanta. Anybody? No, Vedanta. No. Okay. That's another common system. But from our perspective, the two systems that we are interested in predominantly are yoga of course and then its precursor called Sankhya. Have you heard the term Sankhya so far? Sankhya? No. Okay. So I am going to spend some time on Sankhya. That's very important to understand the underlying philosophical structure on which Patanjali you know, put his structure of yoga together. All right? So, we'll spend some time on, on Sankhya. It's important to understand that. Okay? So, the the Sankhya philosophy, as I, as I mentioned, is the kind of the, is the base underlying philosophical structure that Patanjali used uh, in many ways. Of course, he, uh, he, made it much more practical, much more approachable by adding a lot of value to it obviously. But then Sankhya is the underlying philosophy. Sankhya is a very, it's, it's a very philosophical thing. It doesn't have any of these, uh, you know, yamas and niyamas and all those, nothing of that. It's just pure philosophy and then it gives you the structure.
3: But in the current time when we say Sankhya, we, do we say, I mean we tend to think it as a
0: number, right? That's Sankhya.
3: Okay,
0: this is This, this is Sankhya. So, Sankhya means a number and because it has a lot of numerical, you know, explanations, m- many of these are listed in as numbers, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. That's one reason why it's called Sankhya. The other reason it's called Sankhya, it comes from Kya. Khya means to know, knowledge. And Sankhya means one that contains knowledge. That's another meaning. So, both meanings are okay. Okay, So, uh, the, the original author is supposed to be Kapila. That's the name, K-A-P-I-L-A. But he wrote something which is not recoverable. But there is another text called the Sankhya Sutras. But, I mean, it's available now. Most people believe that it's not authentic. It was added much, much later, maybe only about six to 700 years ago. Kapila was more than 2500 years ago okay so you know that's why it is not quite clear as to whether his if his text is is the most original or not but what is now currently studied most commonly it's called sankhya karika it's by a, a, the name of the author is Ishwara krishna that's what most people study now all right as as a part of the sankhya karika sankhya system the key Characteristic of the system, you know, I am giving you some of the very, very highlight uh, ideas which are presented in the Sankhya system. Okay? The very first verse, in, it's in the form of verses, not sutras. They are no statement. They are actually verses in a, in a real meter that you can sing along. <laughs> okay? And there are only 72 of them. So he has made it very short. The very first verse there, it enumerates these three types of suffering that we go through. And and these three forms of suffering are physical, then mental, and those caused by divine intervention. Alright? And we'll go quickly over these uh, in a little while. And what it says is that every one of us goes through this kind of suffering. Everyone. Alright? So we have to find a way to eliminate suffering. Right? If there is suffering, we need to eliminate you know, Who wants to live in suffering? Right? But we all know that we have, we sometimes have physical suffering, mental suffering and divine intervention. You know, divine intervention is what? Higher Yeah, but what are, what are the kind of things that make us suffer divine intervention? Tsunami, floods, fires, plagues, even, you know, you can call even COVID-19 as one of those, you know, who knows, okay. Mm -hmm. All those are, you know, called divine intervention, right? Where we have no control, but we suffer because of that. Mm -hmm. Physical suffering is what? (laughs) You you slap somebody, kick somebody, (laughs) that's physical suffering, right? (laughs) Or shoot somebody, or you get bitten by a... A mosquito, (laughs) it may seem kind of harmless, but it is very, very painful when you are bitten by even an ant. If if an ant bites you, you can, very painful. Snakes, you know, in the old days, you know, snakes and scorpions were very common because they lived in the forests, so they had to be careful. Those are called physical suffering. And mental suffering, what's mental suffering? Any idea, any example? Quick? Stress. Stress. Stress, anxiety, all kinds of negative emotions, you know, all this and these negative uh, self talk uh, hmm? negative, negative negative self-taught, guilt feeling, fear. So, hmm? fear. Fear. Yeah. All these are self-inflicted, most of them. You know, that's the whole idea of mental suffering is self-inflicted. And we have all these. So, physical, mental and divine intervention, those are the three kinds of suffering. But then what they say is that we have to find ways to get rid of the suffering. So, one argument given is in that same text that look, if you have physical suffering, go to a doctor, he will will fix you up. If you have mental suffering, go to a psychiatrist, Go, go to a shrink, he might fix you up. Right? The divine suffering you can do nothing about it, just wait, basically. Right? So why bother by doing anything else? But the text says that look, these are okay means. You need these and they will give you some relief, but that relief cannot be permanent. It cannot be permanent and it cannot be complete. If you get sick, you might get, take a medicine, take a pill, get, get well, but then you will get sick again. That causes mental suffering. Suffering, not pain. We're, does everyone understand the difference between pain and suffering? What's the difference? Quick example: pain and suffering.
1: I think pain um, is is well, pain can be mental as well as physical. Yes. Actually. Yeah. Um, and it is something that is actually occurring um, in your body if it's
0: physical, but um, suffering also, as you said, can be self-inflicted. That's right. So pain, like I said, you know, I have to stretch my legs because I hurt my uh, hip a few weeks ago. and I cannot sit cross-legged for too long now. <laughs> so I hope you don't mind this. Uh-huh. Uh, So uh, pain, they say, is inevitable. Suffering is avoidable because because it is self-inflicted. So I have hip problem now. I cannot sit for too long. And I'm actually teaching a meditation course. And, you know, normally one would think, oh, this guy is a yoga teacher. How come he's stretching his legs out? He can't even sit. And how can he teach all that? You know, that can give me a lot of suffering. But I recognize the pain. I leave it at that. Okay, no, no mental suffering, right? If you get, if you get struck by a car or something, very big accident. Okay, what happens? You lose a limb or something. Pain is there. Obviously, there is going to be pain, so you have to take care of the pain. Suffering is when you start adding stuff into your mind. Oh my God, what am I going to do now? I can't even go to work. I cannot earn money. How can I support my family? All that stuff. That's suffering. Okay. So what this text says that look pain is there that's okay but suffering can only be avoided by understanding the real underlying concepts of your mind, of your human being, of your being. Okay? So they say look we are going to talk about these 25 elements. And once you understand the essence and the truth behind all these 25 elements, you will have no suffering. Okay? That's the promise they are giving. All right? So now, let's see what they are talking about. All right. So first of all, uh, you know, we recognize that it's a dualistic philosophy. Just like yoga. Yoga is dualistic. Does everyone know what that means? Dualistic? What does that mean?
3: Mind and body.
0: Hmm? Mind, and body kind of thing. Mind and body. What else is dualistic? Why is it dualistic? You can cheat. Because there's two. Hmm? There's two. Two of what?
2: Principles.
0: Cheat, cheat.
2: But they are? Yeah.
0: Perfect, thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, so hmm? the soul and the, the outer environment and then the self. Soul. So So that's dualistic. Are you aware of anything that's non-dualistic? Anything that's called non-dualistic? Most religions? Hmm. Yeah, which religion? Which which philosophy? Catholicism. Hmm?
2: Catholicism. Christianity.
0: Is it uh, is it non-dualistic? Explain what that means. It just
2: means there's just one. There's just
0: one what? One creator. One creator. Then who are we? We are the creation. So there is a duality then. There is one created and there is a creation. Does that make it dual or non-dual? If there are two entities, creator and the created creation, we are talking of two entities then. So how is it non-dual?
3: Nature.
0: I'm just trying to understand if you, if you get a good grasp of what's non-dual and what's dual. Well, to us, non-dual
1: is always
0: just one. Just one. one that's thing. right. One, one. One
1: thing.
0: One thing. So, in terms of religious philosophies, well, that's my question. Do you know of anything that's non-dual? No. Okay. Let me tell you. It, there's a philosophy called Vedanta. I mentioned that term Vedanta. They claim, of course there are other versions also but the non-dual version of that philosophy there is only one reality and they call it Brahman. Everything else is temporary, unreal, you know, all that stuff. But anyway, this is dual. Okay, You have to understand that. There are two realities. One is called Purusha which is the soul, self with a capital S. And then Prakriti is everything else around it. My body, My mind, my intellect, that's all prakriti. Uh, Even all the material stuff that we have around here, the earth, water, you know, air, everything that's all prakriti. Alright? So that's a a dual uh, non-dual philosophy, and it's an almost like an atheistic philosophy. There's no mention of God in this one, in the Sankhya philosophy. Of course, Patanjali added Ishvara, God, in there, as you know. Okay. Now the other thing that it has a very strong component of these three gunas, uh, I don't know if you recall that we went through the three gunas last time in the Gita study, right? Does anybody remember the three gunas roughly? Tamas, Rajas, and Satva. Tamas, Rajas, and Tass, Do you recall what they are roughly? What are these three gunas? Yes, no? you want me to say? Yes. Wasn't Thomas like just laziness kind of? Uh-huh. And then Rajas was like over ambition. Mm hmm. And then, um I don't know how to say the last one. Uh, Sattva.
2: Sattva. That's more like you don't have, like you're not being possessive over things as much, you're more just kind of in
0: the present moment. Yeah, m- more positive stuff, you know. peace, all that stuff. That's good. Good. So, these are the three gunas and uh, and we we talked about the three gunas in fair uh, detail when we did the Gita study. Alright? So, I just uh, copied a few verses from the Gita that we did last time. There is no reason to go over these. Okay? So, Sankhya talks about three sources of knowledge. You know, everything has to be known but because they are saying that you have to know these 25 elements and we will come to that, what the 25 elements are. But then you have to know them. Okay? So, what are the three modes of knowledge, right? Alright. So, uh, did you cover the modes of knowledge in, in yoga? No? Okay. Alright. No, we will cover that now. <laughs> You're doing yoga. So, what are the three sources of knowledge? One is called direct perception, the other is called inference, and the third is called scriptural testimony. Okay, now what is direct perception? Which is the knowledge or the information that we receive through the five senses predominantly. So if I see somebody, I know who it is. You know, if I hear something, I know what that sound means. If I smell something, I know what it is. Predominantly what's received through the five senses, it's called pratyaksha or uh, in English it's called direct perception. Inference is based on our previous knowledge of something. Right? So if I look out the window right now, you know, I can only see a little bit of darkness outside. I cannot see the sky. Right? But because of my previous knowledge, I can infer that there is no sun in the sky. That is inference. I cannot see the skies, so I have no direct inf- knowledge of the sun, but I know by inference I know that. That is called inference. Infer- inference based on my previous knowledge. Okay, a most common example in our yoga texts of inference is smoke and fire, you know. So <laughs> they always say, okay, you see some smoke at a, at a distance, mostly they say mountain or Something like that. So there is smoke on the mountain. But now you know that there is fire on the mountain because we know from our experience in the kitchen that fire is always, or smoke is always associated with fire. You cannot have smoke without fire. That's inference. All right. And then there is this testimony or or a verbal testimony. It should be verbal testimony more than uh, scriptural testimony. But basically, what it says is that first of all, our scriptures are very, very uh, thorough in knowledge because they are a result of these yogis finding the truth in their deep states of meditation. So that's correct knowledge. We should believe that. And a common example would be, you know, you're sitting in your home and uh, somebody says, oh, there is fire in the mountain. I'm just taking the same example. Smoke in the mountain, right? And then you, you, there's a, another person comes in, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I was there on that mountain and there is fire and there is smoke there, a huge fire. So now if you trust that person, then that becomes a trustworthy person or source of knowledge. Okay, that's called trustworthy source of knowledge. All right. So uh, this whole philosophy of Sankhya is based on what is called the principle of causality. Causality means the, the effect is always present in the cause. <laughs> Something that you will understand. very common example would be yogurt and milk. Right? 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 Yogurt is the effect. It's always present in the milk. You just have to do some modification to the milk and you get yogurt. Does everyone know that? <laughs> right? Or if if there are some oily seeds like, let's say, uh, almonds and, you know, any of these, you know that it contains oil. You just have to do some modification to it to, to bring that oil out. Crush it, oil comes out. Things like that. So they say, you know, effect is always present in the cause. Okay, keep that in mind. All right, so there are 25 elements. All right, now, I'm not sure if you can read this chart, it's maybe too small. Is it okay? No, I can't see that. Not too good, right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, let me just very quickly go through this, first of all, and then I'll enlarge some of these boxes to, to show you what they are. <coughs> so, at the top left, we show Purusha, which is the soul. Okay, top left. So, this is the top left. It says Purusha. Alright? Soul. On the right, I say Prakriti, unmanifest. Okay, I'll talk talk about what's unmanifest here. Okay? And then, from that Prakriti, we have this evolution. Evolution, the first thing that's that's evolved is Buddhi or intellect, our intellect. From the intellect comes the ego. From the ego comes the, from the ego comes the, these uh, few things that are listed here. What is happening here now? It doesn't want to blow out. (laughs) No, what happened? Got stuck. Okay. So now there are, you know, we we have the mind. Okay, then we have the five organs of perception. Does everyone know what the five organs of perception are? Taste.
2: Taste.
0: Hearing. Hearing, all that, yes. Good. And then five organs of action. So there are five organs of sense sense perception and five organs of action. What are these? Hands. Hands, yeah. Feet, huh? Um, Good. Brain, hmm? mind, action, action.
3: Talking,
0: speech, yeah, tongue. So hands, feet, uh, feet, tongue for speech, and two more. <laughs> mm. Guess.
2: Ears. Well.
0: Uh, Ears don't do any action; they only receive. That's uh, sense perception. That's sense perception input. Legs. Legs. We, we already talked about feet and legs, uh-huh. hands and arms. So that's and then speech. That's three. We well, already covered. Number four is organs of elimination. Mm-hmm. And number five is organs of procreation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are the action, those are the action oriented organs. So so we have five sense perceptions, and five action uh, action uh, for action and then there on the on the right side of this chart you will see the uh, the five were called the subtle sense perceptions the sense of sense of sound touch so if you can maybe this doesn't want to somehow expand anymore anyway sound touch form or shape and then taste and smell right these are subtle senses now <coughs> ears are associated with hearing, that sense of hearing. But that's a subtle. Ear is gross in terms of the physical being. Eh? Sense of hearing is the subtle sense, right. So, uh, they are also associated with these five gross elements. Does everyone know the five gross elements? Earth, water, fire, air and ether, alright. So, they have these correspondence now. The sound is associated with ether or space. Touch, is associated with air and form with fire, taste with water and smell with earth. Okay, so this keep this in mind. Ok, so let me move on. Now, I just picked this up. I am just going to read this <laughs> because I picked it up from a book. What are the, the characteristics of this soul, Purusha? It's outside the realm of causality outside space and time, beyond it, transcends space and time. No no limitations. It's completely inactive, doesn't do anything. Utterly simple, unrelated apart from its sheer presence. Okay. Uninvolved in in emergence or transformation, it's without parts, completely independent, transcendent, yet always imminent by reason of its close presence, proximity, presence. And the presupposition for all apparent discrimination, discrimination or differentiation, it's neither an object nor a subject, and it's verbally uncharacteris- uncharacterizable, etc. There are lots of different ways that you can describe this self. Okay, this pure self, pure the the soul that we are, basically. So you know we always kind of say that right we are nothing but the pure soul have you heard this term we are not this body not this mind not this you heard that right no you heard that right mm-hmm. okay so that's the whole idea this pure soul is untouched uncluttered by anything that's the idea all right now one thing that is very unique to this philosophy <laughs> is that this soul is individual. So that means there is multiplicity of these purushas, of these souls. Every living entity is its own soul. Just like you said, in, in Christianity there is one God, right? In Sankhya, there is no such concept. <laughs> no one God. Everyone. Is their own individual soul. So multiplicity of pur- this is a very, very unique feature of this philosophy, which is totally different from that non-dual philosophy. Because in non-dual, it's all one, nothing else, right? This is all multiplicity. Okay. Now the the way it all has been dis- dis- described is that look, purusha, purusha or the or the soul doesn't do anything, but it has to be present in the near vicinity of Prakriti for things to happen. Prakriti has no consciousness of its own. Purusha is the only entity that has consciousness. But to make things happen you need consciousness. Right? Otherwise you can do nothing. Intellect cannot function without consciousness. The mind cannot function without consciousness. So they have to be present close to each other. That's called proximity, okay? Close presence. And that's how the prakriti can borrow consciousness or use the reflected, they call it reflected consciousness, to do all this stuff. So it has to go through creation, right? That evolution chart that I showed you. First the intellect, then the ego, then the mind and all the senses and all that. So all that is called the, the, the effect of consciousness which has been borrowed from this self. Is this making sense or <laughs> am I too abstract? Like I said, this, this, the whole topic is a little bit abstract. I understand that. But you know, without this, we cannot understand Patanjali. Without this background, it is uh, it's impossible to understand Patanjali. Okay? So that's why I am kind of going through this and (laughs) it's just the way things are. Okay? Now, so, so, so this whole concept of purusha and prakriti, it will come, you know, when we go through our yoga sutras, it will come many many places. So we'll be talking about those. Alright? Same concepts. Like I said, Patanjali has used these as his own underlying uh, structure basically okay so so now let's move on to the brief overview of this of these uh, sutras four chapters everyone knows the, there are four chapters right does anybody know the names of the chapters anyone cheat 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 <laughs> Read out the names, please. Four chapters.
1: Question on contemplation. Uh-huh. Question on practice. On what? On practice.
0: Practice, uh-huh. Rebootipa. Portion of accomplishments. Accomplishments, uh-huh.
3: Absoluteness.
0: Absoluteness. Okay. <laughs> you study sutras, you have to remember these names of the chapters, right? First one is called samadhi pada. Pada is a chapter. Samadhi pada, sadhana pada, vibhuti pada. Okay, vibhuti is all the super normal powers that you can attain. Vibhuti, and the final is kaivalya pada. Kaivalya means that final uh, attainment of your super conscious state. All right, so. What's contained in chapter 1 at a very, very high level, this is what I have lifted here. So, in chapter 1, you first start with definition of the goal of yoga. Okay? Then there are uh, the description of the five kinds of changes that go on in the mind. right? And we'll, we'll go through that. Okay? And then there is practice. and um, Let me skip these. I think we will, uh, actually it's probably much more useful to to go through the sutras themselves and then you will understand what I you know, what I have to cover. Alright. So now we actually come to the understanding of each sutra. Now let me also make sure we are in sync with the time. So we have time till 8 o'clock, right? I <sighs> <It's>, am <laughs> just going to I am trying to, in my own mind, see what's, what is it that we should cover, so it makes more sense and what we should leave out for the time. I'll, I will go along with the way it goes, okay? Kind of go through this sequence. Alright. The very first sutra, let's start with that. It says, here now is the exposition or the discipline of yoga right here now all right now this is given the understanding that patanjali was a yoga te- was a teacher and he had many students right so he is addressing his students and these students apparently have been with this teacher for a long time and they have gone through other disciplines of learning in the ancient days the common system was that the students would live for 12 years, just like here, you know, 12 years of school. In the old days also there was 12 years of school, but those 12 years were spent in an ashram or in a guru kulum as that was called, which is kind of a residential school, okay, where you live with the teacher for 12 years. And then you go through all other, you know, disciplines of learning, you go to math, literature and everything, uh, spirituality, whatever, but then at some point in time, Patanjali says, Look, now. <laughs> now you guys are ready to learn yoga. Alright, I prepared you everything. You know, your background is all ready now. And you are qualified now to learn yoga. So uh, the commentators say that also means that he is qualified to teach yoga. Okay? So he's saying that look, I'm qualified to teach yoga. You have earned the qualification to learn yoga. At the same time, this is the most auspicious time to learn yoga. These are the some, some of the uh, essential statements that this uh, first sutra means. You know I have a, uh, a commentary on the sutras. The name of the author is uh, Veda Bharati. It's on the, on the sutras. And his commentary on, the first, on this very sutra guess how many pages he might have written on that commentary. Any wild guess? Hmm? 5 10
3: pages
0: Five, ten pages on the very first sutra he has spent 48 pages on that sutra the very first sutra it's a very simple sutra remember atha yoganushasanam that means this is i'm now going to present you the discipline of yoga 47 pages of description of what what atha means long Commentary. What yoga means? Long commentary. What anushasana means? Long commentary. <laughs> what this whole thing means put together. <laughs> okay? So, here, what's yoga? Atha means now. The word Atha is now, right? What's yoga? It says Atha yoga anushasana. Yoga means what? It's derived from the root word yuj. And there are multiple meanings of this word yuj. Okay? Uh, Common meaning is to join. Right? Uh, Now, let me ask you this. Yoga, you know. when you are all yoga teachers or going to be yoga teachers soon. If somebody were to ask you, what do the word yoga mean? What would be your most common answer? What would be your answer? What does yoga mean to you? To make the mind and body one. Mind and body one and?
3: According to some principles to be followed.
0: Say that again. What's yoga? Uh, The the literal meaning of the word yoga is what? union. Union. Union of what? So the next question is what? Union of what? you call this God. Like, soul. That's yeah. soul basically. In Patanjali it's all souls.
3: Mm.
0: Okay so union of you and soul. I want to hear from everyone. What's your understanding of yoga? It's important. We're going to get into this now. Um, I
2: would like to say like the same but also um, so that you can get, get into like a state of like freedom, like
0: ultimate freedom. Ultimate freedom. So, so complete the whole thing, right so from beginning.
2: A union of soul and body mm-hmm. that you practice in order to gain ultimate freedom.
0: Ultimate? Freedom. Freedom. Freedom from? Who's binding you? Whose slave are you? Freedom from? Okay, keep that in mind. All right. That's a good. So, a union of body and soul and freedom. All right. But what's that?
3: For me, it's mind and body, just making sure your soul and body is
0: connected. Mind and body. So, connecting the mind and body? Yes. Okay. You think they're separate now? Oh, to a degree. To a degree. Okay, so you want to join the mind and body together. Right. Okay. All right. Heather.
1: You need the mind and
0: body. All the way back. Ah, back. <laughs>
1: of—I always I think of it was union of the the
2: mind and the and the uh, body, so that that way they have to be—they both have to be at the right place. But um, like you can't have—you can't have a good body without a good mind, um, or you can have it. What's—it's not good to have a good mind without a healthy body. So it's bringing the two in line so that they're—they're they're, they're one.
0: Okay, mind and body basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, Heather. Mind, body, and soul. Union of mind, body and soul. Alright. Keep that in mind, okay? Everyone got that? Union of mind and body. Union of mind, body and soul, etc. Freedom. Keep that in mind. Very important concepts. What's the? Let me go back to number two first and then we'll come back to this. Okay? Let me just. Uh, this is the, one of the more important sutras. Uh, you probably have heard this, right? Number two? What I does it? Read it
3: more hmm? This one comes more often.
0: In more the- often, right? Because it defines yoga. So what does it say is the definition of yoga? Read this. You want to read this definition? of the mind. So, we're talking about cessation of what's going on in the mind. There's a term that's used as vritti. Vritti. Vritti is what's happening in the mind. Right? What can happen in the mind? Lots of stuff. You can have a thought. You can have a feeling. You can smell something. You'll have smell. You can taste something. You can see something. And then we always talked about things like guilt feelings, emotions and anger and hatred and everything. Anything can happen at any time, but that's constantly happening all the time. So there's a constant chatter going on in the mind, so to say, right? And what this says, that yoga is the ability to subdue or diminish that chatter. Right? Get that? diminish their chatter. That's the goal of yoga. That's the definition of yoga. That's the goal of yoga. It doesn't say union of mind, body and soul. Keep that in mind, for now at least. Right? The whole purpose of yoga is to calm the mind. Because mind is extremely volatile all the time doing something to calm the mind. Okay? In the eight limbs of yoga, I'm just jumping around, all right, just to give you a concept here. In the eight, Does everyone know what the eight limbs of yoga are? Can you list them? Can you name them? Yeah. Cheat. <laughs> anyway, let's not waste time. Yeah. Okay, so, eight limbs of yoga. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi. Do you, have you heard these words at all? Yes. You have. Yes. All right. The final state is samadhi. Final state, final uh, limb of yoga is samadhi. It's also a state of the mind. It's also a technique as well as a state of the mind. What is that state of the mind, samadhi? What is it?
2: Truth. Hmm? Truth.
0: The truth, like finding the truth. Finding the truth. So in, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the what, the way things are here. What that state means, that your mind is now calm basically. That's what it means, right? Your mind has found a way to subdue, to diminish all that constant chatter that was going on. And now it has attained a state which is fairly stable. (laughs) Alright? Samadhi. Freedom. Hmm?
3: Freedom.
0: Well, Freedom comes later. At least mind is calm now. Alright? When we then we talk about freedom, freedom from what? Freedom from suffering. From, from suffering. Liberation. Hmm?
1: Freedom from suffering, enlightenment, liberation.
0: Right. That leads to that. So that state of the mind leads to liberation and freedom. Okay? But we're talking about samadhi as the state of being where the mind has been made calm. Not a whole lot of fluctuation, not a whole lot of a lot of chatter going on. And then, so that's exactly what Patanjali is going to say, that, you know, we'll go to that. Getting to your point, exactly what he's going to say. But let me go back now. So keep in mind, the goal of yoga is to attain that state of samadhi. Now, the word yoga is derived from the root word yuj. Yuj has multiple meanings. One of the common meanings is union. But guess what? Patanjali's yoga philosophy tries to attain a state of samadhi. And one of the meanings of yoga is samadhi. All right? So what is applicable in yoga, in our yoga philosophy, in yoga sutras of Patanjali, what they are saying is, Okay, uh, where, where was I? Oh, I am going backwards, All right, sorry. Alright, so uh, what we are saying is that look, because our objective is to reach the state of samadhi, therefore the meaning of the word yoga that we want to carry with us is samadhi, in the state of samadhi. That's the meaning, not union. All right. And why is it not union? We will come to that later. <laughs> but right now we understand that the whole idea of yoga is to attain the state of Samadhi, which will take us to liberation. Keep that in mind, freedom. Those words are very good. Okay. But to get there you have to be in the state of Samadhi. And the word yuj, one of the meanings is in the state of Samadhi. Therefore, keep that meaning in mind. Not union yet. Alright? No union. Alright, now also, you know, uh, this commentator called Vyasa, remember I mentioned the word Vyasa, he was the most authoritative commentator. He says before you go on further, let's understand that the mind has these five states, possible states. Okay, Mind at any time is in in any one of these five states. Okay, what are these states? The first one is called totally disturbed and scattered, (laughs) which is the state we are in almost all the time all right we think of this think of that come back you know all kinds of stuff All right, that's called the scattered state the second is dull sleepy you know we are also in a, in a state sometimes which is totally dull i my my brain is fried we can say you know, <laughs> i can't think straight <laughs> that's the second state then the third state is partially focused so first one was totally distracted, scattered completely. Second was dull and, and sleepy and lethargic and all that. Third is where you now you are sitting in meditation and you come to a point where every now and then you know you are able to stay focused for some time. So that's partially scattered, partially focused. Okay, that's number three. You go on you know in, in your own deeper states of meditation. Number four state he says is fully one-pointed, where your mind is now able to focus for some length of time on the same object. That's called fully focused. And once you have attained that state and it can sustain for a length of time, then you reach the final state of complete cessation of everything in the mind, total cessation. Alright? So those are the five states of mind that are described by, by the commentator. Alright, so this is the, the definition of yoga, right? So, there are four, uh, four words here, yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodhaha, okay? This is just one sentence I would strongly recommend that you memorize in Sanskrit. Okay, it will make a lot of sense, alright? So, if it's not too much, may I ask you to repeat after me? yogas chitta vritti nirodha everyone repeat that
3: yoga chitta vritti nirodha one more time yoga chitta
0: one by one another time all right go ahead uh
2: morning tell me
0: where they oh you okay you don't have that all right go ahead now read it
2: yoga chati vritti
0: all right, let me, one, one word at a time, repeat after me. Yogash, everyone. Yogash. Chitta. chitta, Vritti, Vritti, Nirodhaha. Nirodha. All right, now the whole thing. Yogash, Chitta, Vritti, Nirodhaha. Yogash, Chitta, Vritti,
2: Nirodhaha.
0: Right, one sentence that you want to learn in Sanskrit, that's it, no more. <laughs> All right, so what is Chitta? Chitta is the... The whole mind complex you can call it. And I'm going to show you a picture of what that means, okay? Chitta. Mind, basically, where stuff is happening, right? We said all kinds of stuff is happening, all kinds of thoughts, feelings, and emotions, everything that's chitta. And vritti is what what is what's happening in there, right? Chitta is the space where it's happening. Vritti is what is happening. <laughs> all, all stuff that's happening is Vritti. And Nirodha means. Suppression, cessation, subduing that and you know controlling that, all that. Alright? And then of course I have added the word there, vrittis are all these uh, fluctuations are caused by these three gunas. We all know that. Because of the constant flux of these three gunas, it causes vrittis, it causes all kinds of uh, fluctuations in the mind. Alright. So now, you want to understand what are the four functions of the mind. It's very important to understand the four functions of the mind. Alright. What are the four functions? What does the mind do? Basically there are four things that we do. Knowledge. Broad. Hmm? Knowledge. One is, uh, well, first of all, you know, we have a cognitive function, right? We cognize stuff based on the five senses. We also pull stuff from the memory. And things like feelings like guilt and <laughs> we all said that anxiety, you know, all, all that is happening. That's called the mind. Manas, it's called the mind. Alright? Cognitive mind you can call it. And then there is the intellect which is kind of the, the decision maker. Basically, uh, if there are multiple choices presented, one that will actually pick, a, pick one of those. Hmm? Reasoning. Reasoning, analytical, understanding, decision making, all that stuff is called the intellect. Okay? The third is the ego. Roughly, what does the ego do? Roughly. I know stuff. I know stuff. You know, I, basically. Everything is pointing to I or mine, you know. It's mine or it's I, you know. I I do this, I am the mother, I am the father, I am so and so, I am intelligent, I am dull, I am stupid, I am all that stuff, right? That's I. Alright? That's called the ego. And then there is of course the memory. We all know that, right? There is a whole big storehouse of memory right from multiple lifetimes, you know, that stays there. Alright? So these are the four broad categories of functions of the mind. So this is a picture that I have kind of shown how to understand the functions of the mind. I don't know again if you can see that or not. But let me kind of go through it. You guys are too far I think. (laughs) That okay? Yes. Alright. So uh, I have shown these here. Let me see if I can move my uh, cursor around doesn't want to move. What is it doing? It's moving but only outside on the periphery. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. I don't know what's happening. Uh Uh-oh. I don't know. That's very strange. Anyway, I cannot put my finger there. Why is it not showing? Ah, now it is. (laughs) Finally. Okay. So I have the mind, intellect, ego and the memory, right? Four things. And on the right I am showing this soul with a dotted line. Like I said in the beginning it only has a presence in the proximity of this whole complex called Prakriti. It's not directly connected. There's no solid line. But it is there. It's, because it's, its presence is required for anything to function here because they all need consciousness. So there is reflected consciousness here. Alright? Now, the mind is connected to these ten senses, the five sense perceptions and five organs of action. Remember we all talked about this already. Sense of hearing, touch, taste, smell and all that. And then the organs of action. That's what the mind is connected to. It controls everything. If I want to pick something, the mind has to tell me to extend my arm and pick it up. Okay? That's the mind. Now, you know, I always like to give an example uh, to kind of understand how it all works together. And the example is, uh, let's say at the end of the day, uh, you know, you just finished your work and you're coming back from work. You enter home, probably you're hungry march gently toward the kitchen and as soon as you get close to the kitchen you start smelling something nice. You know, you start smelling something and the idea is it's nice. So what we are saying is we are now getting all these senses engaged basically. Because once you get to the kitchen, on the kitchen countertop you see a piece of cake sitting there. Ok, so you, the smell was coming in from even when you, can, you were not able to see it but now you can see it. All right. So the sense of sight is engaged, then your inclination, intuition is to dip a finger in that cake just to see the texture and all that, Mm -hmm. right? So you dip your finger in there so the sense of touch is engaged and what's the next intuition? (laughs) Taste. taste, Taste, you know, put it in the mouth and taste it out, right? So you have a lot of information now about the cake, it's smell, taste, touch and all that. But then there is option, right? What are the options?
1: Not
0: to eat it. Eat eat it or not to eat it, right? Eat it or not to eat it. So eat it or not to eat it, right? (laughs) So, So we have to make a decision now. So what we said was the decision maker in our structure is the intellect. That's how the decision is made, All right. Now, so the mind says, hey, hey intellect. What should I do? The way things are, unfortunately or fortunately, intellect in the current state of our being is somewhat of a slave of the ego. In most cases it is, okay. Ego is a little more powerful. So intellect says, okay boss, ego, you know, what should I do? Ego says, no problem, I'll look into the memory. So what I'm going to take a step back here. See, everything that we experience in life, it gets stored in the memory. Right? Everything. Right? You're you're having this class here, and you're maybe you're learning something, maybe not, but it's going to get stored in the memory. Now, one thing that the ego does, in addition to this memory of this pure. You know, uh, pure memory which will say, okay we met on such and such date, at such and such time, so many people were there in the class. That's good memory, right? Pure memory. But the ego will add a label to it. What does it say? I liked it. I hated it. I loved it. I hated it. It's always going to do that. No matter what experience you have, ego is going to put a label on it. We know that, right? Like it, dislike it. Love it, hate it. Want it, don't want it. Another label. It puts two labels in there. First one was like it or dislike it. The second is I want it again. Or I want to have no connection with it ever in my life. Alright. So those are the things which you get put in the in the memory. Labels with the label memory and label. Now, so this ego says look I'm going to dip in the memory and then find out if there like, is something similar or not. So it dips into the memory, picks up an instance. Ah, this is very similar to the cake I had uh, 10 days ago. And then it reads the label. What does it say? Divine experience. That's the label. Delightful, delicious, the most beautiful. All right. Good. Ego says, no problem, intellect. Tell the mind to do the needful, you know. motor action and all that. All right. But then when it comes to the intellect, he says, you know, I am the decision maker. Let me make a little bit independent investigation also. Goes into the memory. (laughs) Everything is done based on the memory. And it finds a somewhat related incidence there. What was that? My visit to the doctor recently. Okay. (laughs) Blood work done. (laughs) And guess what? The blood work came out that your cholesterol levels are dangerously high. Right? That's what it came out. And the doctor immediately said, go and visit a nutritionist, a dietitian, find out what you can, cannot eat. So I visited the dietitian three days ago, and guess what she said? Don't you take that, uh, Hmm? But
3: don't know, fat. What's that? Know,
0: very heavy. I mean, no sweets, no fat. Yeah, so no sweets, no fat. Um, basically, that's the guideline, right? So it, it's kind of scared but it goes back to the ego, kind of scared. Hey boss, boss, look what I found. I'm not supposed to eat this. <laughs> Guess what the boss says. You are an idiot. <laughs> can you not read the label? <laughs> OK. And it says divine experience, one piece of cake. Has anybody been killed by one piece of cake? <laughs> How can you be so stupid? Right? Okay, so you get the message, right? This is what our life is. This is how we are leading our life. Predominantly, I am not saying all the time, but predominantly we are driven by the ego and that's making us make wrong choices, many times. In terms of eating, in terms of what we should do, what we should not do, going, you know, going to a party, not going to a party, visiting a place or not visiting a place. We are mostly driven by the ego. There are obviously times when we are driven by the intellect also, which is which is what we want basically. So the main theme of yoga, Patanjali says, the main theme of yoga is to diminish the influence of the ego in favor of the influence of the intellect. It's the main theme of yoga. Okay, that's why we are doing all these. Study of Yoga Sutras. That's what Patanjali says. All right. So far, so good. Yes. I'm trying to. I hope it's okay because obviously I'm not going to cover much of what you know I have present in the in the Sutras, lots of Sutras. But my my assumption is that this background is essential in understanding the Sutra. Does that make sense, Heather?
1: Yes. yes.
0: Without this background, we will not understand these sutras ongoing. Okay, I may not cover anything. You know, I may cover only ten percent of what I have here, but I think it is essential that we get the background uh, understanding. Okay, once you once you go into depth, this will come in handy. Okay. All right. So. So then, what? what Heather said was, you know, that once we have a mind which, is, which has been calmed down, which is without fluctuations, that's when we are able to find our true nature. That's liberation. Our true nature is the soul which is fully liberated. No more tied down to this ego or the intellect or whatever, right? It's no more tied down now. Now we are fully Independent, okay, and we are able to stay that way. All right, so that's the state we can get in when we are able to calm the mind. That's what this statement is. And the next statement is says that otherwise, if you are not able to calm the mind, then what happens? One remains identified with the modifications of the mind. Then you are tied down. If you, if you, if you have anxiety, you say, I am anxious. You know, I have anxiety. Then you are tied down. You are completely bound what is going on in the mind. I am angry. I am jealous. I am rich. I am poor. You know that I takes over then because you have no realization of who we truly are. If you know that I am a pure soul, just providing consciousness to these entities, then instead of saying I am angry, I will learn to say my mind has anger. Okay? If, if I want to say, uh, you know, uh, same thing, You know, whatever you want to say, I am hungry, my, my body is hungry. We have to try and isolate me and what I have for my experience, my body, my mind, my intellect, right? All these are there to provide me experience of this life, right? If I say these are my glasses, I am just saying, right? These are my glasses, right? What am I saying? Glasses is one entity and my, whoever, whoever is saying my, that entity is separate, right? Right. If it is my computer, this computer is separate from me. Then only I can say it's mine. Two entities. right? If it is my body, my body. So this body is separate from whoever is claiming it to be the owner. It's my mind. So my mind means my, the mind which I am talking about is separate from whoever it claims to be the owner of this mind, my intellect, right? You get the gist of what I am saying? Yes. Okay? That means there is an entity which is separate from this body, from this mind, from this intellect, so that it can claim it is mine. It's my intellect. My intellect is very sharp. But then this entity is different because they cannot be the same, right? you get this? So that separation is what we are trying to get at. So that I can claim it's my body. And my body has pain. I don't have pain. (laughs) I have a body which is hurting. So my body is hurting. This is just kind of a quick way of understanding why we should recognize the separation between my true entity, true essence of being which is Purusha or the soul and everything else that's going on. you get this idea? okay? Separation. But we are not. We are bound. We are tied together. <laughs> we are always saying, oh, I am hungry, I am anxious, I am rich, I am poor and all that. I. All right. All right. So very quickly now I'm going to move over to... The the word used was uh, vritti. So we're talking about these fluctuations that are going on in the mind. And what Patanjali has done, he says, let's broadly categorize them in five different categories. Okay. So these changes that are going on in the mind. Okay. So that's what he's going to talk about. But then he says that these are of five, five kind and they can be either painful or not so painful. All right. How do we kind of understand that concept of painful and not painful? The, the word used is kleshta in Sanskrit. The means which comes from klesha. And klesha is something that he has actually talked about in chapter 2. We haven't talked about that. But basically it means something that is driven by our likes and dislikes. Okay? That can always be eventually end up in pain, all right. Remember, I talked about everything is stored with a label, likes and dislikes, and if it's if we're life if our life is driven by that, then generally we end up in suffering. <laughs> so, for example, if I were to take a, a quick example, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, this almond barfi that we take, right? We ate right now. Right? I put it in my mouth and I love the taste. I'm really enjoying it. Alright? Now if I keep that experience to that limit only, love it, enjoy it, you done with it. Alright? Causing, I'm not causing any kind of like, like or dislike. At this moment, I'm enjoying it. I'm in a state of ananda or state of joy, right? And I'm done with it. So, no pain, no suffering, no attachment. Now, I, and I'm enjoying it. At the same time, I'm saying, "Oh, it is so good. You know, I want to have it again. You know, I, I, I should learn how to do it, and I want to." keep doing it and it's so good and and then I keep that in my mind I attach that label I like it I want it again all that eventually is going to cause me suffering because next time you want that it's not available and you go running around you know (laughs) you may not find it whatever alright so the whole idea is to like they say be in the present moment basically you know not not get attached to anything so I can enjoy it Great. Without getting attached to it, without causing any kind of labels in the mind. Okay? So that's what Patanjali is talking about. Okay? So, uh, and you can always uh, read about these, uh, you know, the the examples they gave, a sight of a a beautiful woman will cause different fluctuations in the mind. In a child, he will have a different thought about the woman. Uh, another woman will think differently, a young man, an old man, or a yogi, they all have a different view of something that they see as a beautiful woman, right? Rain can cause pleasure for a farmer and pain for one who has a tennis game schedule. You know, I used to play a lot of tennis, so I like this example. You know. I, I mean I, I put it in there. Yeah. All right. Another scenario I have put here is a man is seriously wounded, he's unconscious and after a fall or something, option one, okay, you go there, you take his wallet and walk away, (laughs) right, he is unconscious, right, that's Kleshta, that's going to cause pain, eventually suffering, you know that, right, but then the second option is you call the police or the ambulance and so the man is helped, okay, so there is no pain, no nothing, there is no hidden agenda, okay, it's purely service, right, you get the idea. Okay. Now, I'm just going to list these and then maybe leave it at that because we don't have time to go into great depth of this. So the five types of, of these fluctuations are categorized in these five uh, categories. Right cognition. Okay. Misconception. Alright. And then fantasy, sleep and memory. I'm going to give you very quick examples, right. So um, we already talked about these three <coughs> sources of knowledge when we were doing the sankhya. Does anyone remember those? <laughs> um, Pratyaksha. Pratyaksha is direct perception. Yeah. Inference. Inference. The number two. Um, uh,
3: some, te- uh, some testimony.
0: Some testimony. Okay. The the word. Sanskrit word used are slightly different. In Sankhya, they use aptavachana, and Patanjali uses the word Agama. They all mean the same thing. It's it's a verbal testimony of a reliable source. Okay, so those are the three ways you can have right knowledge. What's wrong knowledge? Same example. Uh, always they always give uh, it's a very dim light, and there is something lying on the road, and you think it's a snake, and you run away. Fear, you know. And then somebody with a flashlight comes in. He says, why are you running? He says, there's a snake there. Or well, let me see. He puts the flashlight on it. What is it? A rope. It's coiled around like a snake. It's a very common example. Snake in a rope. That's, oh, you, if you read Indian literature, you'll find that everywhere. Snake in a rope. Okay? So the misconception is caused because of inadequate light which is always translated as our ignorance in the mind. Because of our ignorance, which is not properly lit, (laughs) we always have misconceptions about life. always misconceive things, we uh, misunderstand things, we have conflicts, because we have no clarity. Alright? But when, when we develop clarity, Right? When the ignorance is removed, when we are full of pure intuitive wisdom, everything is clear. Okay, That's the example they always give. So That's misconception. What is fantasy? Imagination. You hear a word and you start imagining things. A common example, God. <laughs> you hear the word God. Everyone has their own imagination. What God is, where he is, he or she is, you know, what kind of clothes he or she is wearing and all that, everything, okay? God. Any, any abstract noun can be treated as fantasy because if you hear, hear the word love, everyone has a different imagination about love. Truth, any abstract noun can be considered in this category because word is there, it, it, is, it doesn't have a shape or form, but imaginary understanding of that. All right? Okay. That's fantasy. Deep sleep. What happened in deep sleep? Dreaming. Mm-hmm. actually mean deep sleep, not dreaming. In the deepest sleep. You know, there are three states, right? We, have, we, have, we are in either one of these three states. One is waking state, one is dreaming state, the third is deep sleep. Deep sleep means there are no dreams. In the waking state, we have experience through the five senses, you know, we are awake, we, we know things are going on, we can imagine things, we can pull stuff from the memory, all that is happening at the, in the waking state. So all the five senses are active, mind is active. In the dream state, the five senses are not active anymore. But what's active? Mind, overactive. (laughs) Right? Because it's going to pull stuff from everything that we have in our memory, jumble them up and create its own universe. No logic, no nothing. (laughs) It's all messed up. right? Right? That's dream state. Mind, fully active. Senses, no activity. In deep sleep, mind is not active. Senses are not active how can you have any fluctuation in the mind it says this is the reason for fluctuations in the mind <laughs> what are we talking about now so what they say is that look even in the deep sleep there is going to be something left in the mind which will say when you wake up I slept well I didn't sleep too well I had a very disturbed sleep I am very tired now even after sleep and all that depending on see these vritti are still functioning I am sorry, these gunas, sattva, rajas and tamas, they are always functioning. Whether you are asleep, whether you are deep sleep, it doesn't matter. So they are going to create some of these impressions in the mind, even during deep sleep. I slept well, I didn't sleep well, I had a very distracted sleep, you know, uh, I want to go back to sleep now, you know, I am so tired, all that stuff. Okay? That's what is happening in the sleep state. And then memory, we all know that, right? Memory. We love that part, right? We can pull stuff from the memory which happened ten years ago and make ourselves miserable. anybody anybody ever done that? Yeah. Can you can you identify with that? We do that all the time. We're very good at it. Becoming miserable for no reason, nothing apparent. Just pull something. Oh my! Oh, I, you know, I, I should have done that. I should have done this, and all that. You know, that's. So that's memory. So these are the five broad categories of, of things that can change mind, basically, cause changes in the fluctuations in the mind. Alright? And the whole idea is to to somehow learn how to subdue all this, basically. So we can have a very calm, clear, pure mind, you know, <laughs> and Uh, as they say, fat, dumb and happy or something like that. (laughs) Alright. So I'm going to skip all this now because you have uh, have these so you can always go through these. But now we'll come to uh, this statement here. So we've understood there are five categories of vrittis, remember? Again, just to quickly memorize, uh, quickly uh, reconnect those, five Five types of, what are these five? The rittis. Huh? What, what kind of no. The five rittis. Oh. five rittis. Five rittis, five types of fluctuations, what we just yeah. went over. I just want to mem- quickly rec- uh, recollect those, so we can know.
2: Correct cognition, misconception, fantasy, deep sleep, and
0: memory. But good. So five, five of them, right? Now. The whole idea of yoga is to suppress, <coughs> subdue, diminish these five fluctuations, five kinds, right? right? Nirodha is the word Do used? How do you do that? That's what he's saying here. So that suppression is done by two things here. The restraint of these mental modifications comes through assiduous practice, the word used is abhyasa, and dispassion. Or detachment two things okay constant practice and detachment practice is easy to understand I guess you know you need constant practice to 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 attain anything right what is this detachment what does that mean dispassion detachment non attachment what does that mean Mm-hmm.
1: Like, you, 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 don't have any, you just don't care. There's,
0: you just let it go. No, detachment, uh, what does it mean when we say non-attachment? Or, for, first of all, what does attachment mean? You know,
3: it's belonging, you're attached, you're attached to something. You're attached to
0: something, right? So if I like this uh, sweet, this, uh, you know, I'm attached to this now. I want it, you know. Every morning, 7 o'clock, I want my cup of coffee yeah. or uh, I'm attached to a glass of wine every day, you know. That kind of attachment or you're attached to a human being or a person or something like that, right? But what it says is you have to be detached, okay? Now, two terms are used usually, one is detachment, one is non-attachment, okay? Can you kind of see a difference in the two? How do you differentiate between the two? Would well, it not
3: attachment mean that you never were attached to begin with? Versus yes. The attachment,
0: you actually have to separate yourself from that thing. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. So, if I've never had this Murphy before, you know, I don't want to get attached to it. I want to enjoy it and then get done with it. Okay. But if I'm already attached to my glass of wine every day which is causing harm. I know that it's causing me harm. How do I detach myself from it? Okay. So That's the, the whole idea of vairagya. Okay. The, the Sanskrit word is vairagya. Okay. So two things he says, abhyasa, practice and completely dispassionate detachment. Okay. This is a good example. He says a flooded river can devastate villages or, or it can irrigate fields depending on how you use them. Devastation is prevented by building dams and irrigation is controlled by digging canals etc. The mind, think of it as a river because it is flowing all the way toward the sense objects. <laughs> okay, so that's what it is saying that it is always flowing toward the sense objects and it's going, eventually it's going to end up in the ocean. It's called the ocean of life, death, rebirth. It's an ocean. It's a continuous cycle basically. So, to break that you have to have dispassion. You have to have detachment. Alright. Alright. And we need practice. Okay. And this is the definition of practice. It's a very uh, popular statement, very commonly quoted. Some of you might have heard this. So what it says is, the practice is that which is, you know, uh, you know it, it, has, it gets firmly established or firmly grounded only when it is persistently exercised for a long time, long time without interruption and done with an earnest, reverential attention and devotion. Three attributes of practice. Three attributes. Long time, no interruption and done with a sense of devotion and reverential attention. So when you talk of long time, okay, how long are we talking about? A week, ten days. How long? How long? long? Lifelong. Lifelong.
1: Daily. Hmm? Daily.
0: Daily. Daily? That's uninterrupted, but in terms of the duration. Yes, lifelong. Lifelong. Now, does that mean that at the end of this life then you will attain liberation? No. Then what does it mean then long term?
3: As long
0: as you live? No, 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 but as long as you live you can do that, but then will you attain a liberation at the end of this life?
1: Not necessarily.
0: Not necessarily. Then what do you need?
1: Practice.
0: I know, but how long? Continued. We did that for the whole life. Now how long can you continue beyond that? When do you, achieve, when do you attain liberation? When the point on. is to attain liberation. I know. But we, have, we have spent the whole life doing this. And you're saying that we haven't attained that. Now, how do you attain liberation then? That's the point. You said you have spent the whole life doing this practice and you haven't attained anything. But then how do you attain liberation? No. What Patanjali says, what Patanjali says, you will not attain it in one lifetime, you will in multiple lifetimes. You will Keep coming back, reborn, every time. He also says, when you come back in the next life, you will not be coming back with a clean slate. You will start exactly where you left off in the previous life. That's how you will attain liberation, after multiple, multiple, multiple lifetimes. right: The ultimate. Yes. Eventually. If you keep doing this practice now, you won't achieve it by, by the end of this life, but then come back next life, come back another life, multiple lifetimes. That's what he says. We need that. But we need to get started. That's what we are doing here, right? We got started. Great. All right? It's a great start that we are all doing here. So that's long time. And uninterrupted means no breaks. Absolutely no breaks. Ab- like she said, daily, if you, if you decide that you want to do daily, absolutely daily. No breaks. And then also you have to do it with a sense of devotion, sense of understanding that what I'm doing is absolutely the right thing to do. And I'm totally devoted to this practice. Okay? So, what does practice mean here? Practice what? Practice of yoga. Practice of yoga, basically. And of course, in Patanjali's system, the way Patanjali has described it, his main practice is meditation, basically. <laughs> you know, that's, that's all he is interested in. Sit and meditate. That's it. Do some pranayama. He talks about pranayama. But then just do meditation. That's what practice means here. Meditate, meditate, meditate. Nothing else, basically. Right? That's practice, all right? So this is Abhyasa. And then he talks about detachment, number 15. What he says is detachment or Vairagya is the consciousness of perfect mastery in one. Who has seized, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> who has ceased to crave for objects seen, which is experienced through the five senses, or heard about. Alright, now let me just very briefly go through this. Like I mentioned, we are attached to stuff that comes through the five senses. Like this Burfi we ate, it came through the tongue. Okay? Right? So we are attached to it now. Alright? It's so good, I want her to bring it next time also. <laughs> okay? So, <clears throat> that's attachment through the five senses, we can be attached to things that are happening in the mind. I can be attached to my my ideals. Oh, what I ha- what I think is the right thing. I'm attached to that. I can be attached to my belief system. I can be attached to my money, my wealth. You know, anything. Basically, all kinds of attachment. Right. All it's saying is that. We have to detach ourselves from these kinds of attachments, okay? And the other thing that some, sometimes happens, at least in our ancient scriptures, they tell us in the Vedas and all that, look, if you do this, if you do that, you'll reach heaven. Or if you do this, do that, you'll attain wealth. If you do this, do that, you'll get 5,000 cows. <laughs> Those are the kind of things mentioned in our ancient scriptures. You can get attached to those because it's mentioned in the scriptures. Okay, but they are useless basically. What they are saying is even going to heaven is useless because you have to come back. In our Indian way of thinking, okay, you can only attain liberation through this human form. You cannot be liberated even if you are in heaven. is only a temporary thing. You go there, enjoy life for some time, come back here. <laughs> that's how they describe it, right? Okay? So that's why you, know, you have to be detached from any of these attractions. Okay, In Patanjali's system, remember chapter 3. Do you remember the name of the chapter 3? What's chapter 3? You <laughs> know, no, chapter chapter Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Chapter three was what? Yeah. What's the title of chapter three? Vibhuti. Vibhuti. What's Vibhuti?
3: Accomplishments.
0: Hmm. Portion on accomplishments. Ah. So, what it says is. Through the practice of yoga, you can attain super-normal powers. Super-normal powers. superhuman, right? What kind of powers? You can fly in air, you can walk on water, you know, you can hear things from far off, you can see things beyond walls, and all that stuff. That's what Patanjali talks about. Okay? But what it says is, but he also said that do not... If you attain that kind of a power, do not get attached to it. It's going to bind you and it's going to completely stop your progress towards enlightenment. Okay? I'm turning
1: on heat, just
0: making it warmer for everyone. Alright. Yeah. Okay, so that's the concept of vairagya. But then he says, That this vairagya, this what we just talked about is the lower level of vairagya, lower level of dispassion. There is a higher level. Okay? (laughs) So when I I was initially reading these sutras, you know, when I came to this sutra and it says it's the lower level. Oh my God, I said this is the lower level. (laughs) I'm already attached to so many things. (laughs) And he says this is the lower level of vairagya. Anyway, so what is the higher level now? He says, the state of supreme dispassion, highest level, is attained when discernment of the self, discernment, that means total understanding, knowledge of this purusha, of this soul, it leads to cessation of all craving, anything that is created by the three gunas. Remember we said three gunas are constantly changing stuff in the mind and that's causing all the cravings. So we have to go beyond the three gunas, beyond their influence and when we attain that, that is the highest level of detachment, dispassion. Okay? You get that? So two levels of dispassion, one is about the five senses and all that, even heaven and all that, but then go beyond even the three gunas, influence, that's the highest level. Once you attain that, then you are liberated. Alright? Okay, so uh, this is just a list of uh, what are the obstacles in your path, on your yoga path basically, what can be the obstacles, right? So then he is listing nine of these. I'm just going to read the names and I'm sure you understand many of them. So I'm just going to read them. Disease, dullness, doubt, carelessness, laziness, sensuality, false perception, failure to reach firm ground and slipping from the ground that has been gained. So these are the distractions or the obstacles in your path on the yoga path basically all right very simple you know things like disease right if you have fever or your disease in some way it's very hard to sit and meditate you know that right any kind of these if you have doubts in your mind no meditation okay same thing laziness and all the sensuality etc every one of these is an obstruction on the path to your practice. When when I say practice and when Patanjali says practice, remember it's all meditation basically, nothing else. And his goal is that you sit down and meditate and you'll eventually attain liberation. Alright? You have to understand this. Alright? And then there are other, it says the, the accompaniments, when you have these, nine obstacles, then these are the accompaniments. They include distress, despair, trembling of the body and very uneven breathing. You know, all these things are also going to be, to be, you can observe these happening. All right? So those nine impediments and then these are kind of uh, attachments to those nine impediments. They happen automatically. All right? And then he says that the, the 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 main idea to get rid of these obstacles is to practice on something you know to focus on something to meditate on something one aspect of something all right one tatwa means uh, you're focusing on one aspect of something only meditation all right this is another very uh, beautiful uh, uh, sutra okay and this is very commonly uh, quoted, all right? So what it says is that, look, we're trying to calm the mind, right? But we are living in a, in a world, right? We are living in a, in a place where there are interactions with people, right? So we are always interacting with other people. So he says, how do you calm the mind while you are interacting with other people, right? So this is what he gives as a kind of a guideline he says, look, you have to divide the, the, the people that you come across into four categories, right? Four categories. So this is very important, all right? The four categories are people who are happy, people who are unhappy, right? Then people who are doing good deeds, meritorious deeds and people who are doing bad deeds. So just broadly, okay? So whoever you come across in life, think of it as, uh, as being in one of these four categories. And then you have to, to have an attitude how to deal with them. All right? So, so people who are happy, who, who seem to be happy and they're enjoying life, attitude is... Friendship, okay? maitri. Friendship. People who are unhappy, people who are miserable, people who are suffering. What kind of an attitude you want? Compassion. Okay? So people who are happy, ha- friendliness. People who are unhappy or miserable, compassion. Empathy, you can call that. Okay, People who are doing good deeds. Towards them, delight, you know, a sense of inner joy, sort of, right? And people who are doing bad deeds, indifference, not getting negatively attached to them, all right? People who are doing bad deeds. I mean, you have to learn how to deal with them, but not with a sense of involvement, not with a sense of attachment. Get this? So, you know, people who are happy. Many people t- you know, tend to be jealous, oh this guy is so happy, you know, why am I so unhappy, what have I done wrong and all that stuff, you know, so we do all these things, right? Same thing, people who are unhappy or miserable, he must have done something wrong in his, in his previous life, that's why he's unhappy, I'm not concerned with him, <laughs> you, know. you know, things like that. So what, what Patanjali says, get rid, get rid of those kind of ideas but develop these attitudes, right? And that will really help you keep your mind very peaceful. Okay? Keep your mind peaceful, calm and quiet. You know, peaceful basically. Alright? Pleasant. So instead of being jealous, instead of being, uh, ah, I don't care, you know, this guy is suffering, let him suffer. I mean, or this guy is doing bad things, I must punish him. You know, I'm the, I'm the one who can control everything. You know, I, I, I need to change this world. And I, you know, all these things, you know, You'll get the idea, right? There's none of that. Develop these four attitudes, you'll be happy. This is a very beautiful uh, sutra. Actually, if you, if you go to my blog, long time ago I wrote, not, well, uh, one of my friends, okay, one of our friends who studies sutras with us, he actually uh, has prepared a, uh, a presentation based on this. He's an engineer so he has done all kinds of PowerPoint presentation on this sutra. It's a one hour talk with large number of presentation uh, PowerPoint slides. It's all on my blog if you want to ever read that, you know. He has done a very deep study of this, just this sutra, nothing else. And he has done a deep study of this and made a one hour presentation with large number of slides and all that. So, I recommend you go through that. Okay, all right, so now there are other uh, ways that Patanjali is talking about how to calm the mind, and I'm not going to go through all these things here. Uh, all right, so this is where I'm going to stop this s- set of slides, and I'm going to quickly move. I know you guys have done eight limbs of yoga, but I'm going to just go through these some of the points which I think. You may have missed, okay, but let me just very quickly bring that up. All right, so these are the eight limbs of yoga. Let me do this, okay. Now, to so remember. Our goal is to calm the mind and we do that by, by what? By diminishing the influence of the ego and making our intellect very sharp. That's the idea, right? So Patanjali has given this very beautiful sutra to introduce the concept of the eight limbs of yoga. It's a very beautiful sutra. You should kind of memorize this sutra itself. It's very uh, interesting because it says what exactly these eight limbs of yoga will give you, help you attain. So what it says is, if I'm going to read this this phrase here, by the practice of these limbs of yoga, the impurities dwindle away. The impurities of the mind, they are diminished. They are kind of uh, stopped. There dawns the light of wisdom. Remember we said light, we need the light of wisdom so we can remove ignorance, right? So the light of wisdom comes through and then that leads to discriminative discernment. What that means is, now I know the real reality. Okay, so so a few things I mentioned here, okay? We have to remove the impurities. When we say impurity, what does that mean to you? What are the impurities of the mind? Bad thoughts. Bad thoughts. Bad thoughts. What else? Impurities of the mind. Jealousy. Beautiful. Anxiety too. Everything, right? All negative stuff, right? So. That's what he says, that when you practice yoga, when you practice these eight limbs of yoga, he's now making a promise, right? (laughs) So he says, when you practice these eight limbs of yoga, impurities will go away. Your mind will become clean, pure. That means no more anger, no more jealousy. (laughs) Are you going to be happy with that? Never getting angry? (laughs) But because of that, because there is no more impurity now, the ego loses its power. And because the ego loses its power, now you are able to get a glimpse of that light that that was always there, but I was not able to see it because ego had put a lid on that, it had put a cover on that. You get that idea? It was not letting you take a glimpse of that light, but that's the light that is shining our intellect and making it pure. Now we are able to make very clean decisions. Our mind is clean, we are, we, are, we are able to focus on things, we are able to think very clearly, we are able to make the best decisions possible, right? That's happening only because the impurities have been removed and we are able to see that light of pure wisdom. And when that happens, now we are able to understand, oh my God, I I was so miserable because I didn't realize who I am. Now I know who, who I am. So I know the difference between Purusha and Prakriti. The problem comes because Purusha or the soul was tied down with this mind, identified wrongly identified with this mind and, and with this whole complex okay that is why i was you know i read i said in the beginning right the purpose of the practice of yoga is not union it is disunion it is to disunite the purusha from prakriti not to unite them when you say mind body and soul you are uniting them Patanjali says that's the source of suffering. That's the only thing you want to get rid of. That union of mind, body and soul is what is causing this suffering. So yoga is not about uniting these things. You to separate them out. Disunite them. Then only you can really feel that sense of being. You know, I am who I am. Do you get that? Message. So please stop saying that yoga means union of mind, body, and soul. It's very important to recognize because Patanjali says that's causing the suffering. That's what exactly is the reason for what we are right now. Okay? So uh, keep that in mind. And if there is time, we'll come back to that again. Alright? So, so again, you know these uh, impurities of the mind. I have just listed these here, uh, just from my understanding. Physical level impurities. Remember, we sh- we saw that sutra. There are nine impediments mentioned. Okay, sickness, dullness, disease, uh, laziness, and all that stuff, right? So those are impurities at the physical level. You you can you can you can remove that by doing yoga. Mental level, in Sutra 2, in the, in the second chapter, he talks about kleshas. We haven't talked about that, but there are things like likes and dislikes, ego, okay, all that are a part of the kleshas. Okay? If we have time, we'll come to that very quickly. Those are eliminated. And then, at the emotional level, you know, they always talk about these six enemies of the mind. This is very commonly mentioned in all our texts okay you probably have heard these yeah. and in indian texts they always say that what are the six kama krodha lobha moha madhama, sarya. you know six always in sanskrit lust or lustful craving right that's number 1 krodha is anger eh? lobha is greed moha is is uh, delusion unnecessary attachment to things delusion, you are deluded, you are not aware of the reality but deluded, alright, that's Moha. Mada is arrogance, ah, ah I am so and so, who, are the, who the hell are you, right, that's arrogance. And Matsarya is jealousy, we talked about that, right. So these six are always mentioned as enemies of the human mind and they are the, what are called the impurities of the mind. Okay. That's what will happen. Alright, so uh, I'm going to just very quickly go through these, now we all know that. <laughs> Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. Everyone knows these roughly? What's the Yamas? How many Yamas? Five, what are they, quickly? Five Yamas?
3: asteya Brahmacharya? That's two. Yeah, I'm remembering. Uh, Ahimsa?
0: Ahimsa three.
3: Ahimsa. Aparigraha?
0: Aparigraha four. The second one, what we practice? Oh, uh, satya. 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 Very good. Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya. Aparigraha. those are the five Yamas. Five Niyamas. Quickly. Uh,
1: santosha
0: Santoshya, number
1: one.
0: Shaucha. Tapas. Tapas. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Swadhyaya. And number five. Ishwara Pranidhana, very good, at least you you guys are familiar with these, that's good. (laughs) Okay, so these are the 5 Yamas and 5 Niyamas, alright, and uh, you guys have already practiced these, right, quite a bit?
1: We are studying each one a month.
0: Each one a month.
1: Yes, focusing on, yes. So we've, we've defined them, absolutely. We've talked about them, yes. We're really doing a concentrated study on each one once a month as we go throughout.
0: Okay, okay. So you you have still a few more to go?
1: Right, yes. Okay, Maybe, that's fine. This is just the third the weekend.
0: That's fine, okay. So <laughs> now you'll get to know these, okay? So uh, the reason I'm saying that is I don't need to spend too much time on these, all right? right. Okay, so... Uh, I've, I've listed here eight limbs of the Buddhism also, eightfold path. You can just read that, uh, roughly similar. Okay. These are the five Yamas, you already talked about them. And these are the Niyamas. So this is another concept which is very important, which is very uh, nicely mentioned here. It's called Pratipaksha Bhavana, which means that when you are disturbed by any negative thoughts, right you should learn how to bring about the opposite of that okay it's called it's a very important concept and uh, you know patanjali talks about it a lot uh, people quote it a lot it's called pratipaksha bhav pratipaksha means opposite 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 of what if you're angry try to get some calmness in the mind some love maybe if you're hatred full of hatred bring love okay Things like that. So what it says is develop or learn. It's a a learned technique, right? You have to practice it. (laughs) Otherwise, when you're angry, you have no other thought, but you're angry. That's it. But if you can kind of step back and look look at anger as anger and then say, okay, I want to become a little more uh, compassionate and all that, right? Loving. That will help. Okay? Negate that strong negative tendency to its called. So when you are disturbed by negative thoughts, you think of the opposite of it. And why would you do that? He says, this is again a very beautiful uh, sutra here, that why do you want to bring about the opposite of these negative thoughts? This is a, a statement that you should really understand. He says, when negative thoughts or acts such as violence etc., right? Ahimsa or Hinsa. Hinsa is violence. Ahimsa is non-violence, right? So when negative thoughts or acts such as violence are caused by, caused to be done or approved, I can ask somebody, I can kill somebody. That's violence I'm causing. I can hire you to kill somebody. So I'm making you do it on my behalf. Okay? That's number second way of doing it. Third is, somebody is killing somebody and I approve of it. I am saying it's okay, you know. I don't care. Alright. Now, all these three are causing violence. With my knowledge or directly through me. Alright. Now, this involvement can be, like it says, mild, medium or strong. You know, it, it can have different degrees. You can have a very strong hatred for somebody and just kill kill the person or uh, you just want to make somebody suffer slowly because it's not very strong, (laughs) things like that. So it can have gradations, you know, all these thoughts, all right? The point he's making is, look, doesn't matter whether it is strong, whether it's mild, whether you do it or you get it done by somebody, eventually it's going to come and get you. (laughs) eventually it's going to come and get you. Whatever negative negative things you are doing, it's going to come and get you. In the sense that eventually it will come back and uh, haunt you or make you suffer. Negative stuff will happen to you. So, If you have that kind of an attitude, that kind of understanding, obviously you will not do these negative things then. That's what he's saying that's why this pratipaksha bhavana or the opposite attitude is so important okay because you understand that whatever you're doing which is negative is going to come back and haunt you and more all right so this is the uh, so this is uh, again uh, what patanjali has done if you if you read the sutras He has not given definition of any one of these ten uh, yamas and niyamas. Any one of these, he does not define them. What he has done is to give you, give you the, the consequence of practicing those. So, if you practice ahimsa, what will happen? If you practice satya, what will happen? He he assumes that you know what ahimsa is. He assumes that you know what satya is. (laughs) Like I said, he has already trained these kids or his students and they all know all this but he's telling you what will happen so i'm just picking up this one now he says when you are established in ahimsa people around you will give up all kinds of animosity okay automatically they will give up any negative feelings all right so uh, you know there was a an example uh, that usually given in in some of the indian texts is, you know this there is a very famous, well-known uh, uh, spiritual master, alright. So, you know, let me just, uh, his name was Neelakanta. Okay, he was known as Swami Narayan, okay. And, you know, there are these temples all over the world, you know, Swami Narayan temples. And they are the, some of the most, beautiful temples in the world. If you want, if you want to find the best temples, Swaminarayan temple. <laughs> okay. And there's one coming up in New Jersey which su- which is supposedly going to be the world's best. Yes.
3: It's still under construction. I mean, it is done. Yes. It's, com- it's,
0: it's, co- it's coming up in New Jersey and they claim it to be the best in the world. <laughs> Alright. Now, the Swami Narayan, the guy's name was Neelak Kanta, and he became a, a, a spiritual person, leading a spiritual life at a very young age. So he left his home at a very young age. So apparently when he was roughly 10 or 11, he was going from, he was walking around and trying to meet people who would give him enlightenment and all that. But himself was very advanced in his uh, spiritual uh, upliftment already. So he goes from village to village and Talk, talks to people, you know, whatever, you know, he's learning and, and also sharing his knowledge. So he reaches this village and he, uh, in the evening, and uh, he wants, he always goes and sleeps under a tree or something, you know. That's how people lived in the old days. They would go find a shade, shade a tree. There's always a, a platform around a tree in most, most villages. You can put your stuff there and sleep. Now these villagers came to him, that look guy, look kid, uh, you know, uh, this, this village has a, a little forest right next to it and there is a, a tiger, okay. It's a ferocious tiger and it, every night it comes to the village and it can you know, harm you basically. So we suggest that you don't stay outside on the, under the tree. But there is a temple there, and there is a place there that you can stay in the temple, inside the temple, so you'll be safe. This guy says, Don't worry about me, I'm okay, you know, I'm fine. I've lived like this all my, you know, all these days and years that I've been walking around, and I can, I, I'm okay. He, he just doesn't want to go inside, so he's sleeping there. Now, everyone in the village thought that this in the morning he will not be there, he will be gone that the, the tiger would have eaten him up and it's gone so wake up in the morning they come to that tree guess what, this guy sleeping nicely and that tiger is sleeping right next to him very comfortably so the the example they gave is that look, what Patanjali says is true if you are completely established in non-harming in ahimsa everyone around you becomes Becomes full of ahimsa. They will not harm you. And you know, this is the example they give. Apparently, a true example because this, this guy lived, you know, around what, 100 years ago or something? Not too long ago. So, his stories are still known to people. Alright? So, same thing with, you know, truthfulness, etc., etc. Not going to go through these just go to pick something that you may not have heard. <laughs> okay, all this purity, shaucha, and then santosha is contentment, we know that. And then uh, tapas, tapas, do you know what tapas means, roughly? Zero
1: zeal austerity
0: austerity what did the first word you use zeal zeal, zeal? is that austerity zeal is you know I'm zealous I'm, I'm really I have a lot of energy that's zeal I'm not sure that's my, my understanding of English is not 100% but I thought zeal is to have a lot of vigour and, and, and zest mm, Zest. Yes. but that's not austerity
1: Right.
0: What is austerity? I think...
1: Peacefulness?
0: No, no, no. Austerity.
1: It's
0: the... What's austerity? Check, check up the meaning online, please. Yeah. Because I, I think zeal is totally different from austerity. Uh, I want to make sure you understand the meaning. Can anybody check the meaning of austerity? See?
2: Simplicity of style or appearance. Hmm? Simplicity.
0: Hmm. Toughness, basically. <clears throat> it's what? Toughness? It? Hmm?
2: Yeah. Zeal is great energy or enthusiasm?
0: That's different. That's what I'm saying. Zeal is totally different from austerity. Right? Austerity basically means that you are able to live frugally and you can can put, hmm? simple Simple but tough in the sense that you are able to put yourself through enough hardship that your body becomes strong, your mind becomes strong and you are able to withstand all kinds of dualities of life. That's austerity. You live on something very minimal. Alright. Do you get that, Heather? I do, yes.
3: Okay. how do we put this tapas in the context of how the sages
0: did tapas? Tapas, basically what they did was they would uh, would live on whatever is available in the forest. Sometimes they would go without food for a long time. That's tapas. Sometimes they would sit and meditate for 10 hours, 10 days, 10 months, 10 years. That's tapas. Right? Yeah. So hardship, basically, measured putting yourself through measured hardship that's tapas okay people do go on a fast that's tapas these days it has become very important that you do tapas how <laughs> get rid of your television for a week can you do that get rid of your phone for a week can you do that okay can you can you do tapas on your uh, on your whatsapp, on your facebook, on your internet, that's tapas, okay, eliminate for some time, okay, hardship, measured, That's hardship, that's tapas, okay, just wanted to bring that out, make sure we understand this, and then what is swadhyaya, Self Hmm? Self 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 study, And self-study, how do you do that? By understanding the real truth which is conveyed in our ancient scriptures. So study those, understand the reality, understand the truth, apply it to yourself and then you do self-study. That's Swadhyaya. You can do chanting, you can do devotional studies etc. But Swadhyaya also means developing a full awareness, full knowledge about whatever you are doing, swadhyaya, understand, okay? apply that to your life. right? If you are working on a project at work, you want to do swadhyaya, that means understand everything that goes into the project, detailed, in depth study. Then when you, when you apply that, you, you get the best out of your work, that's swadhyaya, alright? And what is Ishwar Pranidhana? What's Ishwar Devotion to a higher power. Devotion to a higher power. Now, this higher power, the word used by Patanjali is Ishwara. Okay? And he has given a very precise definition of Ishwara. And you have to go by that. Don't go by your own kind of ideas about some higher power. So when you say higher power in your mind, what does it mean? God. What does it mean, God? What's God to you?
2: A higher power. Something that we can't control.
0: What does it do to you, this higher power?
2: Guides us.
0: How? What kind of guidance? How? What and how? Like
2: through
0: prayer? Hmm? through prayer? Through prayer. Prayer is what? Prayer is you are doing something. How does, how does higher power guide you? The, all, I'm, I'm, all I'm trying to get at is that this concept of God is very different from each individual, ok. So that's why, I, <laughs> my recommendation is not to use the word God for Ishwara, use the word, what is the word you want to use, Ishwara, don't change it, ok. Don't translate Ishvara into anything. Because anything you translate that, it will give you a wrong conception. A different conception than what it is supposed to be. Alright? So keep the term Ishvara. Learn that. Alright? Ishwara pranidhana is surrender to Ishvara Because Ishwara has been defined very, very specifically. Let me see if I have that definition here. No, I don't have that definition. Maybe I do somewhere. Anyway, uh, all right, I don't have that definition here, but I have it in a different. uh, uh, All right, anyway, so that's Ishwara The The way he has defined is that Ishwara is a special kind of a Purusha, and I'm just giving you the definition. I, I can't find the slide right now. So he says, Ishwara is a special kind of purusha. The Sanskrit phrase he uses is purusha visheshaha, special purusha. What kind of special purusha? Special soul, special atma, special soul. What kind of it? He says, it is totally unaffected by anything that we do. Like we are affected by our karma. Have we, everyone heard the term karma? Karma and, and then we have, we collect karma, we gather karma and then we are impacted by that in future life, right? Everyone do, knows that. Ishwara has none of that. He has no klesha. Klesha is again that same thing, likes and dislikes and ego and all that. No, none of that. So klesha, karma, vipaka means no, obviously if there is no karma, there is no outcome of that, there is no fruit, okay? So he has no klesha, no suffering, no, no inf- affliction of any kind, no karma. He doesn't do anything and he doesn't get any fruits of action and no ashaya. That means there is no collection of karmas for him. Okay, so he is completely, the word uses A paramrishta means totally untouched. He is completely free of all this. That's the kind of purusha which is a very special purusha. He calls it Ishvara. So, we cannot translate that as God. In, in, you can, I mean, <laughs> if you want to translate that God, that's fine. Because that's the most common translation. But, keeping in mind the very definition that he has provided. That's what God, God is for us in the Yoga Sutra, okay? And then you surrender to that because it is very special. That's the higher power we are talking about. That Ishwara which Patanjali has described, defined, that's the higher power we want to surrender to. Okay? Because otherwise if we just say God, we have very different conceptions. You know, God for somebody is somebody sitting behind the clouds, and you, you whatever, you know, there are different concepts about God. Okay. Alright, so now so that was uh, Ishwar Pranidhana. So these are the 5 Yamas and 5 Niyamas. What's the next? Uh, next limb? Asana. What's asana? Hmm? Posture. What kind of posture? What kind of posture?
3: Something you sit
0: on. Something you sit on. That's asana. What else? What's posture? Asana.
1: Poses.
0: Mm, Poses. Standing. Standing, sitting, inverting poses. Where does Patanjali say that? Where does Patanjali say that you should be standing on your head, or on your shoulders, or, or you should be in a pretzel shape? Where does he say that in the sutras? Does he say that? No. There is no mention of any of these poses anywhere in the sutras. How many sutras are allocated to asana? Only three. Only three sutras are allocated to asana. Alright? And this is the number one sutra. Asana is a steady, comfortable sitting posture. Key word is sitting posture. Sitting posture but is steady and comfortable. Not inverted postures not pretzel shape, not downward dog. None of that is, is asana for Patanjali. The only thing that is asana for Patanjali, mm-hmm. that's it, that's it. What's the root word for asana? As. As means to sit. Asana, like she said, It's the posture that you sit in, which could be cross-legged or Padmasana or whatever, you know, your lotus pose or whatever. But something sitting. And what you sit on, like this bolster, is also an asana for me. This is an asana and this posture is an asana. Only sitting posture is what is intended by Patanjali, nothing else. Keep that in mind. (laughs) Very important. Asana means sitting posture. Alright? I want to emphasize that because, you know, when you say asana normally, like you said, you know, posture. Posture means all postures. See, all that came much, much, much later. Patanjali said, sit, sit down comfortably cross leg, right? In a posture that you can meditate, right? Guess what? People started having pain after 5 minutes, you know, oh my god, my leg hurts, my knee hurts. So that's why subsequently, many, many years later, people had to de- develop these other postures so that they can make the body comfortable enough, strong enough, flexible enough that they can sit and meditate. Patanjali didn't say all that. All he said was sit and meditate. That's it. You get that? Keep that in mind please. Alright. So this is how you get to that posture. By relaxing the effort and by meditating on the infinite. It's very important. How do you get to that posture? Okay, You, you have to practice it so that there is no effort involved. All right, And then the word Ananta you know, Samapatti, different interpretations by different authors, different commentators. My own interpretation is that you become fully engrossed in this experience. In this sitting posture, Ananta anant means infinite. Anant means infinite. Samapatti is samadhi. Basically total absorption. So I am sitting like this. I am deeply aware of what's going on in the body. I am fully absorbed in that. That's anant samapatti. Pure awareness. Okay. Asana. No effort. I am not making unnecessary effort. At the same time I am fully aware of what's going on. Deeply absorbed. Alright. That's... That's asana, alright? So only three uh, three sutras in asana, right? This is number one. Thiram sukham Asanam, number 46. 47, that by relaxing the effort and meditating on the infinite. And then all the, the dualities, you get rid of physical level dualities. Heat, cold and all that by the asana practice. Only three sutras out of 195. Three sutras allocated to asanas. Keep that in mind. Okay. What's pranayama? Mindful breathing. Hmm? Mindful breathing. Mindful breathing. And then learning how to breathe in different ways. And uh, that's what Patanjali has talked about. Uh, Breathing. Controlling the breath in multiple ways. That's what pranayama is all about. Okay. And he has given these uh, kind of... uh, uh, parameters or attributes of breathing. So this number 50, it's all about understanding uh, how you can modify your breath in multiple ways. Okay, so this is a very important sutra which you must understand thoroughly that the modifications of the mind or, or the prana are either external, internal or stationary. And I'll explain these words. And they have to be regulated by space, time and the number. Alright. So you can exhale and then control the breath. That's external. You can inhale and then control the breath. Multiple ways you can control and how you can control it's coming up. Or you can hold the breath and control that. Breath retention. Alright. And what are the variables that you can add to control? By space. Right, desha, space or location. You can location means you can breathe through one nostril. That's one way. Through other nostril, that's one way. Or you can when you are doing the breathing, you can focus on your third eye, your heart chakra, or your navel chakra, etc. That's physical location. Also, you can focus on how deep your breath is, how far it's going out, how far it's coming in, how far whether it's going to the upper lungs, middle lungs, lower lungs. That's location. All right. That's desha. Kala means time. How long is? Whether it's very long, whether it's very short, that's kala. That's another variable. Alright? kala. And then sankhya. Remember the word sankhya, number. How many times you want to do it? Okay. If you want to do alternate nostril breathing, you do it five times or fifty-five times. You know, that's up to you. Get the idea? That's the, the. the parameters or the variables that he defined he did not define any practice here. He didn't say that you do alternate breathing he didn't say you do Kapalabhati, nothing. He just defined these parameters guys go and play with it. <laughs> that's it. And that's exactly what the yogis did. They played with it, came out with these hundreds of pranayama practices. Alright. Now what is uh, Oh, this is very important. Uh, you know the benefits of pranayama. This is very important to know that he says that by the practice of pranayama, the veil over the inner light is destroyed. Remember, there is a veil on the light I mentioned because of the ego that led that ego puts in. Pranayama can help you di- to diminish that that veil. Okay, and then what happens? This is again very important that the mind becomes fit for concentration. There are multiple practices of dharana and your mind becomes fit for those dharana practices by the practice of pranayama. So Patanjali lays a strong emphasis on the practice of pranayama. Alright? He doesn't lay any emphasis on, on the standing poses or the inverted poses. He doesn't even know about that. <laughs> okay, But pranayama, he says, is very important. All right, He says you can remove that veil of, of ignorance and also you develop the ability to go into deeper states of meditation. Okay? You get that? Pranayama. And then <clears throat> what is Pratyahara? Does anyone know what Pratyahara is? Control the, hmm? Control the senses. Control the senses, right. Control the senses so they don't... Uh, affect you negatively basically or uh, completely uh, disengage the mind from any influence from the five senses that's an important requirement if i'm sitting for meditation and suddenly my phone says ping you know, whatsapp message and i oh my god i have to look at that you no know, meditation is gone right so we want to eliminate all the uh, distraction that can come through the five senses that's Pratyahara. Alright. And I have a lot of slides on Pratyahara. You can go through these. Okay. There's a nice story mentioned in, in, in the in the Purana in one of the ancient texts. He says, to avoid lure of senses, this guy, his name was Sabari. Okay, he was a uh, he was a sage, he was a Rishi, you know, sage, and his name was Sabari. So he what he says is that to avoid the layer of senses, he meditates underwater. Okay? So he's, that means he will not be distracted by anybody else, anything else. So he meditates underwater. These people had the ability to stay underwater, like, you know, they attained that supernormal powers, right? So he was able to sit there and, and meditate underwater. But then what does it happen? What happens? He, he has the sight of two fish mating <laughs> inside the water. And that arouses his passion and then he runs, he goes to the king, he says, I want to marry your daughter and all that. And of course, there's a whole story there mentioned he marries and gets into all kinds of mess. But basically the idea is, if if you allow yourself to be distracted by the senses, this is what happens. Okay, then of course there are these three sutras about meditation, dharana, dhyana and samadhi. And uh, uh, you guys have talked about these at all? You have, right? So let me kind of skip these. Uh, this is a very definition of meditation is, uh, again, just a couple of words here. Uh, the words used are pratyaya ektanata. What it means is that the the practice of meditation dhyana is the ability to allow just one entity in your mind to flow uninterrupted for a long period of time same entity same object should flow in your mind like a like a flow of oil they say you know like an oil flow you know which is very smooth very continuous no distraction right that's meditation same object Whatever it happens to me. The most common object, you know, many people use a mantra for example. you familiar with that? Mantra meditation? No?
2: Mantra meditation?
0: Yeah. You're familiar with that, right? So That's what the people use. So same flow, same mantra. And then what is Samadhi? What is Samadhi?
2: What
0: Liberation is a result of Samadhi, but what is Samadhi? Calming the mind. Calming the mind, Calming the mind to the extent that... Well, you know, let's, let, let's get more technical here, because Patanjali is talking about having an object in the mind at a time. Object. And when you have an object in the mind for a length of time at the exclusion of any other object. That's Samadhi. Okay, so if you are thinking about, let's say your mantra is, what should I pick, Om Namah Shivaya, it's very common, right? You are a Shiva devotee and you say Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. And if you are able to recite that at the exclusion of any other thought coming in the mind, that's Samadhi. Okay, so that's important to recognize, Samadhi. Alright? so. Uh, So that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about, the eight limbs of yoga, all right? Uh, Like I mentioned, I gave you five different PowerPoint presentations. (laughs) So obviously we're not going to get into any of that. But let me very, very briefly tell you what's in the other slides, okay? (laughs) All right. So the one is on chapter 2. It's called the, the, the Klesha, Karma and all that. What that chapter does, it starts out by defining the five Kleshas. Five Kleshas are the afflictions, causes of suffering. And it starts out by, by defining what is avidya or ignorance. That's the main cause of suffering. Ignorance. Ignorance about what? We don't know who we truly are. We are not aware of our true identity. Therefore, we are ignorant. All right? And that causes the ego to raise its ugly head, but it's not ugly enough for him because ego can really control you then. When ego controls you, you get all kinds of likes, dislikes, attachment and aversion. Alright, so you get attached to something or you get hateful about something. And finally it develops all kinds of fears in you. So those are the five kleshas, alright, he talks about. And from there he goes on to describe this entire sequence of karma, reincarnation, birth, life, what causes all that and a great depth of the Sankhya philosophy. So in chapter 2, that's why chapter 2 is very heavy. If you really want to understand chapter 2, you have to go back and look at all that Sankhya summary that I presented. Without that you won't understand that. Chapter 2 is very heavy. It goes into complete details of the Sankhya philosophy. And finally, it tells you that look, you're suffering because of ignorance. You know, there are four noble truths truths in Buddhism. Does anybody know that? Four noble truths. Can
1: you say that again?
0: Four noble truths in Buddhism. You're not familiar with that. Anyway, suffering exists. Buddhism. Buddha said suffering is there or life is suffering, right? <laughs> suffering exists. But you can eliminate suffering. There are ways to eliminate suffering. There is a state that you can get which is free of suffering and there are means of getting there. Okay? Patanjali exactly talks about that in chapter 2. He tells you what is suffering? He tells you how to get rid of suffering, what's the cause of suffering. You need to know the cause before you can eliminate it. So he tells you what the cause of suffering is, which he says is avidya or ignorance. Okay. And there's a state which is beyond suffering. That's the state called kaivalya, liberation, freedom. You have used the words, both of you have used this word, liberation, freedom. He calls it kaivalya. So there's a state that you can attain which is free of suffering. And there's a way to get there. And what's the way to get there?
3: Meditation.
0: Eight limbs of yoga. Get there. <laughs> Don't forget that. Okay? So he says, Practice these eight limbs of yoga and you'll get there. <laughs> Liberation will happen. All right, so that's in chapter two. Chapter three is all about supernormal powers. It starts out by telling you what is meditation, what goes on in the mind when you are meditating and what can you achieve by meditating on different things, different aspects, different objects. Well, This is where he he actually tells you that look, uh, you know, he recognizes mind is going to be all over the place, so these things are going to happen. So chapter 3 describes the kind of changes that go on in the mind, okay. And he will tell you exactly what's what's happening in the beginning, what's happening when you are a little bit deeper into meditation, and what's happening when you are very deep into meditation. Okay. So those are the beautiful uh, statements that he talks about. And again, uh, if you go through my slides, I have a little picture that I have shown there. And again, it's created by the same guy who did that uh, talk on the sutra number 33. He's an engineer, so he designed a picture for me about what goes on in the mind when you are meditating. Very nice picture. You should read that out. Okay? That's in chapter 3. And then there is a warning that, look guys, these supernormal attainments will happen, but don't get attached to them. They will pull you down. They will not lead you to liberation. So get past those, don't get hung up on those, okay, (laughs) alright. And final chapter is all about liberation, what happens there, what are the gunas doing, again a little more about the Purusha and Prakriti concept and all that, that's chapter 4. Alright, then I have one set of of presentations on the entire concept of meditation, all the way from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, what does he talk about meditation? very detailed. And the final presentation I have is on Ishwara, God, that, that term Ishwara that we used. Okay? So uh, give you kind of a glimpse of you know, what you can find in other presentations. You know, I, when I do this presentation it takes a longer time obviously because to build the background itself takes a long time. Otherwise it doesn't make sense to me. You know, I hope you are okay with that okay and uh, uh, when I do these it usually takes me about almost like 15 to 16 sessions to for me to complete all these each session is roughly an hour and a half so when I do these in my my presentations uh, it's a long discussion Uh, it's not easy to understand there are many concepts which I don't understand Uh, but you know I present it the way I understand it, it's okay, you know. My best understanding is all I can do, right? And it's limited. Everyone is limited. My understanding is limited, Uh, but whatever I understand, that's what I present. But I, I continue to make effort to develop a deeper understanding by studying, reflecting, contemplating, you know, discussing with others and all that, so it helps, all that. My suggestion is, study the sutras seriously. They have the ability to transform your life. There is so much depth, so much beauty in the sutras and when you start understanding it, they will speak to you. You know it's talking to me because what it's talking about, is exactly what I'm going through at a deep level. And when you do that, you know, you will start developing a, a much better, <laughs> I would say, uh, understanding of life, basically. Understand yourself, understanding the life. So please keep them on the path of Yoga Sutras. <laughs> Very beautiful. Alright. So uh, again, just to summarize, the whole idea is to calm the mind calm the mind in the sense that there is a whole concept of what's, what's causing all the changes in the mind which is all our some, the past impressions which come up all the time, I like this, I hate this I want this, I don't want this that's what's controlling our life all the time and we want to diminish that Okay? Patanjali says you have to diminish the influence of the ego and improve increase the influence of the intellect basically and you do that by understanding the reality as to who we are truly and that reality can be can be attained by abhyasa and vairagya by practice and detachment okay and then how do you get detachment by completely eliminating the influence of the gunas the three gunas that's very important patanjali also talks about that at the very end three gunas and by practicing the eight limbs of yoga Eventually he says, okay, you, this, is what you, this is the formula I give you. Understand the Yamas and Niyamas and practice all these 8 limbs of yoga. The most important limb of yoga is the meditation. Right? You know, he lists asana, pranayama and meditation. And in general, most people tend to follow that, that uh, sequence. They first practice asana, then pranayama and then meditation. At least that's what it's supposed to be. But guess what? People practice asana, I'm done. I'm done with yoga. <laughs> but, but Patanjali says that's not even a part of the yoga. Yoga starts with pranayama and meditation. Goes into meditation. Meditation is real yoga. That's it. In Patanjali's system, real yoga is meditation. To get there, practice pranayama. To get there, sit comfortably. That's all he says. Right? The practice of asana is just a preparation, just a kind of a prelude to our practice of yoga. Asana is just a, just a means to get there. It's not the practice of yoga but unfortunately that's what is happening these days. You know, we practice asana and we say we have done yoga. Not true.
1: about being in union, I think integration, right? But I will often quote Sutra two when I'm teaching mm. as this is the purpose. That's right. This is the truth.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. Very nice. Any questions? It's it's past eight o'clock. Any any questions? Anybody? Shoot now. <laughs>
1: Why do you think that we we associate it with the union of mind body and mind to get
0: to the luminous self? Well, mind and body is just a part of prakriti. There's there is uh, you know they're already connected basically. Mm-hmm. The, the the body and mind are already connected, right? The mind controls the body and the body controls the mind basically. And in that sense, what we're saying is okay. The mind and body should listen to each other basically. So if the mind says stretch your legs and touch your toes, okay, the, the, the body is going to try that, right, making an effort. But then once you get there, the mind has to listen to what's going on in the body. Okay, if it doesn't listen, then you can say, ah! and then you can get hurt. So that's the, that's a very basic level, that's the union that you're talking about. But that's at a very, very fundamental level. We want to get much deeper than that, much, much deeper than that because that's, that's going to happen, right? But then the mind is also, should, it should be controlled by, not by the ego. That's the whole idea. The ego will say, You have to touch your toes, stupid. This, this person is touching it, why can't you touch it, right? That is so very
3: difficult. Like to hmm? uh, control the ego and get the intellect above the ego, it's very, very difficult when we try to practice it. Right?
0: That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point.
1: So the first book that we read before they come to class, uh, we we dig into uh, Tree Yoga, right? Which, um, which relates itself a lot to Yoga Sutras.
0: Which one? Which one? The Tree of Yoga. The tree of Yoga. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And the, and the purity of the practice. Right. In that mind and body are more integrated, how you 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 make minor adjustments based on everything being connected and right. knowing what is good for you and what is right for your body and, what, right. and that is how your practice becomes more pure.
0: Right. It's true.
1: Instead of just trying to touch your
0: toes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's very true. That's exactly what we want. But then we want to go beyond that. You know, The, the eventual goal of course is to is to recognize that all this is happening because there is some light shining on us, on our mind and intellect which is making us do all this. And that light is my true nature. This is, you know, the very crux of of these Yoga Sutras. That that wisdom that we have is coming from that source which is separate from us, from from this so-called us. I am that. But I am considering my, this, this being my, myself. It's a deep concept, it doesn't happen very easily but that's the, that's the effort we have to strive to get there. To eventually understand that eventually I am going to have to separate, s- stay away, You know, become an observer as they say, drashta. That's the Sanskrit word. And then enjoy life then. Then we'll enjoy life with purity of life not getting clobbered by, yo, oh, I like this, I, I don't like it, then I can, you know, like they say, fat, dumb and happy, you know, just just have, enjoy everything. Then everything becomes joyful. There is nothing like painful in, at that point. That's the whole idea here.
3: So, uh, one, uh, this one, uh, computer, not the confusion I'm just to, just, I don't know how to put it. So, it's like when you are, uh, when we know, should I say like my, intellect knows or the soul knows that something is not good, you're you're not going to do it, but something tells, but the ego tells, oh it's okay, you can do it, this one time you can do it, but still my, uh, is the intellect telling me or the soul or what you call the separate thing which is the soul is telling me? Is it both or one? No. No, no, no. So no. The intellect is, telling me
0: intellect to... is yeah. guiding you properly because it is clean. If it is clean, the intellect can guide you properly but then the ego can play its whole role. Yeah. All we are saying is the intellect is functioning because it has borrowed consciousness from Purusha which is resting in its vicinity. That's it. It is doing nothing by itself. Okay? But it thinks it is doing something because of this confusion, because of this ignorance. It's all messed up. The intellect thinks it's the Purusha, Purusha thinks it's the intellect. (laughs) That's the whole idea and that's the confusion we want to eventually dispel. But then everything is happening at the intellect level basically. Everything is happening there. Borrowing the the consciousness from Purusha. Like I said, it's a deep concept. Keep working on it, keep thinking about it. One day we'll get it, hopefully. Yeah, but that's the idea. Alright? Everyone okay? Alright, let's close the eyes, we'll do ohm three times, one more time. Let's inhale.
1: Om.
0: the invocation to Patanjali one more time, just listen in. Yogena cittasya padenavacham malam sharirasya ca vaidyakena yopakarottam pravaram muninam patanjalim pranjaliranatosmi Patanjalim pranjalirānatusmi Om shanti 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 Thank you, thank you all very much.